0: Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Good morning. I was just <laughs> had a look at my emails and I shouldn't have because um I forwarded the, uh, the notes and the slides for this talk to Chris Dan, so Chris is amazing and he makes all of our resources for collectives, so he takes what's happened on the Sunday and kind of turns it into form. Thanks for this Peter. Only found it this morning is my computer had relegated it to junk. <laughs> so um, <laughs> let's show his computer. Um, well um today we are starting a five week series through the book of James and um, I've become slightly allergic to how often we say we're excited about things in the charismatic church um, but I am actually genuinely excited for this series um, and so for the next five weeks we're going to just verse by verse almost go through this entire book um, and so I've got quite a lot of ground I want to cover today um, five weeks five chapters so we're going to go through all of chapter one today um, so I'll save some jokes and stuff for the next time I preach I'll do twice as many jokes next time and we'll get right into it. Um, so, we're going to spend a couple of minutes just want to kind of get, our, get ourselves sort of oriented into the world of James in the book, and then we'll, we'll, we'll move on from there. So, James was the brother of Jesus. Um, there were several Jameses in the New Testament, but for various reasons, we can rule out a couple of the others, and we think that it's the brother of Jesus who wrote this letter. Now, there's a cool picture going to come up of him. And um, this James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So, for sort of a couple of decades in the middle of the first century, he led what was essentially the mother church um, in Jerusalem. So we're talking about someone with you a know, couple decades of just really, really um, rigorous pastoral experience. And, and at that point, the church was going through poverty, it was going through famine, it was going through persecution even. Um, next slide, please, Kate. Um, and so this is someone who has just heaps and heaps of experience. And the book of James um, is kind of unusual because um, it's, it's sort of applicable to all Christians at all Time. So for example, the letters of Paul, often Paul was writing to a specific church about maybe specific circumstances. And whilst obviously we can learn a lot from that, we do have to you know, really get into the cultural context. Whereas the book of James, I think, is actually fairly easy to, to sort of apply, You know, slight caveat there. But, so it's for all Christians, and that's part of the reason I think this is gonna be a great book for us to go through. And James was influenced by two predominant things. So the first of all was Jesus, his brother and uh, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. And what's interesting is James has been called a Sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. And whilst there's not very many direct quotations, there's lots and lots of allusions. So if you Google this and actually do this, it's quite fun. Just Google, you know, Book of James, Sermon on the Mount. You'll, you usually find like a table or a chart and it'll show you all of the different ways that the Book of James is very closely mirrored with the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is a bit of a rabbit hole, but I love this. That's really interesting because James was written. It's one of the earliest manuscripts we have in the New Testament before the Gospels. And so it's really good testament to the strength of oral tradition in the early church that he knew the Sermon on the Mount so well, he knew what Jesus said so well, that he was able to write a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount without having the Gospels in front of him as we do. I find that interesting. Is that interesting? That's interesting, right? Come on. And the other um, thing that James was predominantly influenced by when we read the letter is the wisdom tradition of the Old Testament. So books like Proverbs, particularly, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, those books in the Old Testament that are full of kind of pithy sayings about life, how to live well. And so James is a very direct book, as you will soon find out if you don't know it already. Lots and lots of little short, sort of almost proverbial type sayings, um, lots and lots of that, as opposed to sort of narrative stuff so that's james and the book and yes yeah, sorry, and the book itself so we've got five chapters the first chapter is kind of where he lays out he kind of sets out his stall and he touches on all of the themes that he's then going to address in detail in chapters two through five so in the subsequent weeks we're going to look at things like taming the tongue. We're going to look at not showing partiality. We're going to look at submitting ourselves to God. We're going to look at um, being wary of wealth. So those are some of the predominant themes. There's actually 12 different um, themes that James touches on um, throughout those chapters. And uh, chapter one is he kind of you know touches all the main words and phrases he introduces. So it's, it's a very sort of um, big chapter in terms of its scope. And so today I just want to lay out kind of almost like a, a uh, framework for the whole book that's going to come. All right, shall we read the Bible together? Um, I wonder if you would join me, and um, we don't do this in Emmaus a lot, but I wonder today just as a, as a mark of our respect um, for this book that's come to us through the centuries, if we would stand together for the reading of it, and it's gonna come up on screen. <clears throat> James chapter one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Those who doubt should not think that they will receive anything from the Lord. They are double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed are those who persevere under trial, because when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each of you is tempted when you're dragged away by your own evil desire and enticed, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because our anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Those who listen to the word but do not do it, do what it says are like people who look at their faces in a mirror and after looking at themselves go away and immediately forget what they look like. But those who look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continue in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless." Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the word of God. Amen. Please be seated. Oh, very squeaky chairs. Um, Just going to have a drink. Now, honesty moment. Who found at least one thing in there? hard to hear, or challenging, or slightly uncomfortable. Okay, if your hand's not up, you probably weren't listening closely enough. Um, This is challenging, right? This is very direct, very challenging um, stuff that James is saying. And... um, what I want to do today is just kind of examine. So these, he, he's kind of touched on all of the things there that we're going to look at. So you heard, you know, the, the verse towards the end about uh, how we speak, right? So that's, you know, there's a whole chapter, a whole section of a chapter later on that. And today I kind of want to address what I think the, the kind of meta theme of this book is. What is James's primary concern? And I think James's primary concern is about believers reaching maturity. And so we're going to talk today about Christian maturity and some hallmarks of what that might look like and the reason i think this is that he's really concerned with actually how we live that we practice what we preach to use that kind of old saying and um the word um it's kind of it's kind of difficult the word perfection right can be difficult for us like we you know you kind of shun like oh, you know you don't want to be perfectionist right and in the king james or the sv different translations that that verse um that says you know that count it all joy when you face trials perseverance, that it finishes its work so that you may be perfect. Okay, that's the kind of King James translation, the most well-known. The NIV I like um, because it's mature. And the word that we translate as either mature or perfect comes up seven times in the book of James. And seven times is a really important, it's the most important number in the Bible. It's the number of perfection, ironically, in this instance. Um, and so often um, it's a literary device used to kind of point us to Where the emphasis might lie so in the old testament there's things that are multiples of seven it comes up all the time if you look through genesis i mean it's incredible the the kind of um, the literary kind of genius that went into composing these books and so even the fact that this word appears seven times in james to me doesn't seem to be accidental and so whilst we would um translate as mature or perfect the actual original word had more to do with this sense of wholeness and integrity versus what james knew to be true of all of us right our inconsistency and our complexity and our brokenness we're all more inconsistent than we'd like to admit we might have certain beliefs but we struggle to act on them right we're all kind of riddled with those inconsistencies and so james really desires that those who know jesus would grow up into maturity in their faith and that would look like wholeness and integrity in what they do that they would practice what they preach or what he preached, I guess. But we have a problem, because it seems like, you know, in our modern age, you know, sort of almost moving into what is essentially a post-Christian society, we have a lot of Christians, but not a lot of disciples. And there is a difference, right? The New Testament uh, uses the word disciple 269 times, and when it talks about disciples, it's meaning people who are, like, fully committed to emulating Jesus in everything that they do. And that doesn't, to me, seem to be what a Christian might necessarily imply today, right? And often when you read the press, people have a very specific idea of what a Christian may or may not be now. And that's, that's, it's just a complicated time that we live in. It's post-Christian age, and uh, so we have to kind of do the work of going, well, what is a disciple of Christ? And, you know, is the term Christian, is is it even particularly helpful anymore? I actually don't think it is. That's a whole can of worms. Sorry, I'll not go into that. We are all Christians, just to clarify here at <laughs> Um There's a a man called Dallas Willard who who died several years ago, who um is, um, so I guess 10 years ago, if you'd asked me who my sort of dinner party five, you know, that whole thing, it would have been like Eric Clapton and, you know, Dave Groh, would have been all musicians or whatever and it probably would have been a riotous time. Now, if like, what's your five kind of, you know, dinner party people, I'm like Dallas Willard, Dallas Willard, Dallas Willard, Dallas Willard. Anyway, the guy's brilliant. And um, he talked a lot about discipleship. This was really his main concern was that the church, as he saw it, was failing to produce people who are reliably sort of consistently Christ-like in what they do. And so here's a quote on what he defines a disciple as. The disciple is one who, intent upon becoming Christ-like, systematically and progressively rearranges their affairs to that end. There is no other way. And so really this book is about discipleship. It's about maturing. It's about moving beyond that moment where we've met Jesus and then going on the journey that follows with him, not treating that moment as the end goal, although meeting Jesus is the best moment that anybody could experience. But then Jesus invites us on a journey with him. Okay, So we can't treat that like the end goal. We have to treat that like, okay, now we walk this road with Jesus and with each other in faith so the questions we're concerned with are how do we become more mature how do we become people who are able to live in the tension right that, that kind of is just inherent in human life? The world tends to kind of skew towards like despair or hedonism, like kind of extremes. How do we be people that know that even the best things in our lives are kind of tinged with sadness and pain? And even the worst things that we might go through also have redeeming qualities and things that we can learn. People that are mature enough to live in the tension of life. So it's a big chapter, there's a lot of themes here and that's why I'm trying to pull out this kind of grander theme of maturity and use that as a framework for the subsequent weeks of of teaching that we're gonna hear. And so what I'd like to do now is just offer um, a couple of kind of lessons that I think James is trying to uh, show here as hallmarks of Christian maturity. And the first one is this. I think James wants us to know that we are in a battle. I think he wants us to realize that we're in a battle. As I said, meeting Jesus is the greatest thing that could ever happen to someone. We all know that who, who know and love Jesus and have surrendered ourselves to him. But that's not the end of the story. And sometimes we treat it like it is. You know, we kind of, you know, that's get get people across the finish line. But, you know, then we end up with people that don't know what to do after that. And if we tell people that, you know, becoming a Christian, you know, everything's going to be great and, you know, no pain is going to befall you after that, like life is going to be perfect, that's a lie. And the New Testament tells us that. James tells us that very, very clearly. In fact, what happens when we meet Jesus is that the old nature is still within us, but we have this new birth. So we read in verse um, 18 He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. So we have this new birth in us. But what happens is now we have a new nature and an old nature and becoming a Christian actually draws us into the arena where those two things have to battle it out. I remember when I first became a Christian, it was actually really helpful for me to someone kind of explain this to me, that it's a journey, because you're kind of going, well, why am I still struggling with these things? Or why, why, I, why do I still feel sad sometimes? You know, you kind of think everything's going to be all glitzy and glam after you meet Jesus. And it's just not true. And we have to be realistic about that. And we have to be able to offer people something that's robust enough to stand the tests of life. And so anything that says there's a magic formula or a course or a blessing or, you know, something that you can go or somewhere you can go, someone you can talk to that will instantly transform you into someone who is loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and full of goodness and full of gentleness and full of faithfulness and full of self-control. Anything that says that that can happen just overnight is a lie and we have to be aware of that. We have to kind of, you know, take the blinkers off and accept that we live in a battle. But Jesus is with us, right? So James, I think, is telling us that, you know, prepare yourself for a prolonged struggle. He doesn't say, you know, this is a letter written to Christians. He doesn't say, if you're tempted, in verse 12, he says, when you are tempted, right? He knows that to be a Christian is to be in an arena where you will face trial and you will face temptation. And this is helpful to realize because the world, um, everything that is opposed to the way of Jesus it just is like ceaselessly clamoring for your eyes and your ears and your thoughts and your imaginations and your dreams and your time and your energy and your money. It wants all of those things. And so that's the battle that you face every day of your life. We can't, you know, we can't get by on something that happened once you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 30 years ago or two weeks ago. We have to daily choose to live in this battle. And so actually just an awareness of that, and I know, you know, for many of you, this is like teaching you to suck eggs. I know that, you know, we, we, a lot of us know this, but I think it's really important to just be very clear. Like when you follow Jesus, you now live in a battlefield and he's with you, but you're in a battle over your maturity. And, and throughout the chapter, James kind of weaves these two images together, these two different journeys that you can go on. So he talks about how desire can lead to sin, which can lead to death. But in verse 12, which actually takes the form of a beatitude, blessed are those who persevere. Trial can lead to perseverance, which can lead to life. And so you have these two contrasting choices always at work within us towards life or towards death. So that's the first one, realize that we are in a battle. Um, I'm not going to go into this. I think it's great to go away with questions, so I'm not going to try and address everything. But James, um, people often talk, oh, you know, faith versus works. Martin Luther didn't want the book of James in the Bible because to him it seemed to sort of skew too heavily towards like it being on us to work. And um, Isway's got the joy of doing that one next week. Um, But I want to just say really clearly, I think they're hand in glove faith and works, I don't think Paul and James were at war with each other over that in the slightest. I think it's something that we have read onto it as modern people, post-reformation, all of that kind of stuff. Grace is not opposed to um, effort. Grace is opposed to earning, right? And so both Paul and James, in my mind, are in total agreement that genuine faith leads to good works. They both say that. It's really, really clear. Um, yeah, I know I know it can be difficult to talk about, you know, the, the sort of by grace, by faith alone versus, you know, I know that's a whole can of worms. Good luck, his way. <laughs> so realize that we're in a battle. The second thing that I think James would have us learn is to be people who see adversity as opportunity. Count to all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So you've realized that you're in a battle. And so instead of being frustrated that you're still struggling with the same difficulties or things still aren't going the way that you hoped they would, you can start to flip the narrative. You can start to reframe it and go, all right, how can I use this thing that is kind of befalling me for my maturity and for my growth? Are there any goldsmiths or silversmiths or anybody who works with precious metals in? Excellent, because I don't know if this is entirely accurate. <laughs> I was going to just move on if there was someone here who's like, "Yes, I'm a goldsmith." Um, my understanding is that um, precious metal has to be refined, and what happens is you say you take the, the gold, and it, it gets subjected to a really intense heat, and as it liquefies, the imperfections rise to the surface and they're kind of taken away and that process is repeat it and repeat it until all you're left with is this really pure precious metal and to me that's a really helpful metaphor for what i think it means about counting joy as or counting trials as joy right this this process of of being weaned off our dependence on the world and anything that takes us out of jesus's reach you know kind of this this sense of of embracing those things and Just to be really clear again, like James is not saying seek out trials and temptations at all. That's that's obviously none of us wish that for ourselves or for those we love. But that's the reality of life, right? Don't seek them out, but when they come at you, like how do you embrace them as a way of growing and moving forward? And it seems to be, and again, this is an uncomfortable thing for us to hear because we we're just we're so We just want to be comfortable, right? We want to be safe and secure. But it seems like God's appointed way of maturing us and growing us is through trial and testing. Again, James is really clear about that, but I I think that's kind of just throughout the whole New Testament. Jesus himself, you know, in the world you will have trouble. There's no way of avoiding it. And yet, we have a really good God, a good Father who's with us in all of those things, who's always working through our trials and through our temptations, who's always at our side, willing us on, right? He is so invested in our maturity. One of the reasons I think this is really difficult is because one of our predominant cultural narratives right now is to shun anything that doesn't make you instantly feel good, right? We all know that. And that's, that's a horrible lie. Um, doing the right thing does not always feel good, And we have to be mature enough to realize that. My three-year-old daughter, who I love more than anything in the world and is awesome, she's a three-year-old and she is learning to press my buttons. And my goodness, I'm not as patient and chilled as I thought I was before I had children. And anybody who's had a three-year-old will know that they have this way of just doing that. And so I find myself having to kind of engage with these questions of like, well, what do I think about discipline? How do I, you know, how do I do this? How do I do this well? And it seems like there's a number of options available. I can completely ignore it or suppress it and just kind of not deal with it. And all of the research shows that that's like basically the worst thing that you can do. But we see that happening, right? That kind of Parents just don't, they don't want the confrontation. They don't want to dig into those moments and they just ignore it, right? And the, the, the behavior gets worse, etc. Another option is to be kind of overly angry and reactive and kind of nitpick on everything and, you know, go, go sort of to the other extreme. And again, that doesn't seem to be the right way to do it. What does seem to be the right way is to lovingly, patiently, intentionally discipline and show that there's consequences to our actions so that she grows up to be a robust mature person who understands that her actions have an effect on the world around her but that's a lot easier said than done when you're exhausted and you've got a three-year-old screaming over like I don't know you trying to help her open her yogurt or something ridiculous and it turns into a whole thing it doesn't feel good like if, if I have a difficult bedtime with her I don't sit down in the sofa and go like oh that was great like I feel drained and I feel tired and I don't feel good but it was the right thing to do to hold that line and to help her grow and mature. And so instead of shunning anything that doesn't make us instantly feel good, we have to be people who are willing to do the right thing, even when it doesn't make us feel good right away. Patiently enduring trials doesn't feel particularly good, doesn't sound particularly good, but it's the right thing to do, James is telling us. It takes a kind of bloody-mindedness to be a follower of Jesus. We have to kind of set our faces like Flint to use that great expression, realize that we're in a battle and patiently endure trials and see them as an opportunity for our growth. The next um, and final kind of thing that I want to pull out of this chapter, and I'm conscious, you know, as I've said, there's lots and lots of different themes that that James touches on in this chapter. And so there's, there's plenty that I'm unable to address in this time, but one that um, I think is particularly helpful, and actually, as we start this series, I think is particularly helpful, is this sense of being doers of the word. So let's, let me just read verses 22 to 25 again. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. And then this little bit's kind of like a parable. Those who listen to the word, but do not do what it says, are like people who look at their faces in a mirror, And after looking at themselves, go away and immediately forget what they look like. But those who look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continue in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. I'm going to use my first ever sermon prop. Exciting moment. This is a King James book of Psalms in a little metal engraved cover. That I got as a secret Santa present, um, probably four or five years ago. And the inscription in it is from 1969. It's been around a while, a lot longer than I have. Um, if this was a Fender Stratocaster, this would be worth so much money. Um, <laughs> 69 Strats are really good. If you ever find one, please do let me know. Um, and uh, yeah, so I got this as a secret Santa present. Just you know, nice little thing to have. Little metal-bound book of Sam's. And um, over time, it sits, you know, sits in the bookshelf in the house. It's become Willow's Bible, because it's a tiny Bible, and she's tiny. And so it's, it becomes Willow's tiny Bible. And so sometimes she'll be like, can I have my tiny Bible, please? And, um, and it sits in her room now, because it's, it's Willow's Bible. It's not mine anymore. And uh, most nights at the minute, she actually asks for it. She gets into bed, she's got her teddy bears and her dolls and stuff. And um, we'll, you know, read a story. And then she'll go, can I have my tiny Bible? And... Um, <laughs> So I'll go and grab it and, and bring it into the bed. And um, I'll be like, would you like me to read something from it? And she's like, yeah, yeah. This is usually just before she's going to fall asleep. So I'll just, I'll just randomly flip it up. And I'll just pick one and I'll start reading. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. And she goes, no, 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 daddy. It says, tiny Jesus loves you. <laughs> this is true. And um, some, some, weeks it'll, some nights it'll be, baby Jesus loves you or sometimes she'll go, Jesus loves mummy, and Jesus loves Xander, and Jesus loves, Will. And, you know, she'll, she'll cycle through it, and it's very, very sweet. She's not unwilling to hear the rest of the Psalms yet. Um, but the thing is, that's an entirely appropriate way for a three-year-old to view the Bible, and I love that that's, you know, that's, that's what she knows right now when she thinks of the Bible. She thinks, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves daddy, Jesus loves mummy, and that's, that's completely appropriate. Uh, I mean, I'm so happy that You know, that's what she thinks. But there comes a point, we don't move beyond that truth. Jesus loves us, right? That's always true. But there comes a point where we have to be willing to go beyond that, right? Into the deeper kind of depths and the riches that the Bible has for us and and move beyond Jesus loves you and go, well, how do I love Jesus? How do I show him that I love him back? How do I live in a way that reflects that? How do I mature and grow And I would be willing to say that you cannot grow as a Christian unless you're willing to take the Bible seriously. And uh, James contrasts these two things. um, There's a little, little sort of chart here to show you. You know, the person with the mirror, they observe, they go away, and they forget in one ear, out the other, that kind of idea. And yet you contrast that with, with how he views a believer with scripture. They look into it, they persevere with it. Here again is this sense of patiently kind of enduring and persevering and lasting the race. And then they act on it. And so a mark of maturity comes when we're willing to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. And that's a lot easier said than done. It's kind of easy to pull lofty quotes out of context. It's easy to learn a lot of head knowledge about the Bible and about theology, and that's good. And there's absolutely a place for that, as I'm discovering in my own life in the past couple of years. But ultimately, the mark of maturity is not just knowing that stuff; it's acting upon it and doing it. It's easy to say, "Oh yeah, I love your enemy." Have you tried doing it? It's a lot, lot harder. I mean, I think of you know the the damage that has been done by Christians kind of quoting and pulling verses out of context or whatever to kind of browbeat other people and heap shame on other people who are not by the way usually Christians they're just people trying to go about their lives and so instead of showing them the love of Jesus we kind of try to enforce our morality onto them right it's the it's cart before the horse and imagine instead of doing that those people loved who they perceived to be their enemy they took seriously this command to be doers of the word things would look pretty different I imagine there's a philosopher called Søren Kierkegaard. Has anyone heard of Søren Kierkegaard? Yeah, he's, um, I actually have a direct quote. I love James Wan. Um, Søren Kierkegaard, sorry, I'm having a bit of fun. Um, he's a Danish philosopher, um, widely regarded as the kind of father of existentialism. Really, I mean, really, really kind of tarring figure in the history of philosophy. And he was a Christian. Um, and he loved James chapter one. It was his favourite passage in the Bible. He just, you know, it was one of his real favourite things. And particularly uh, this, the, these verses that we're looking at right now, this parable of the person in the mirror and the believer with scripture. And so he wrote loads about this kind of stuff. And if you're interested, definitely go and have a look at it. Um, and Kierkegaard was a was a big kind of proponent of this idea of being doers of the word and not hearers only and he actually got quite frustrated at the sort of scholars and the kind of biblical criticism all of that kind of stuff that was going on because often it left it leaves you in kind of this like um almost um you know you don't you you almost you feel paralyzed about what to do instead of acting on it because you're like well I don't know if it really means that we we have to you know we have to do more and you keep do do you see what happens like you push off doing it and his argument is that Yes, there are lots of parts of the Bible that are really complicated and nuanced and there are certain words in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek that we, there are sort of varying definitions of and certain words that we don't understand and context, all of that stuff, that's absolutely true and valid and we need people that are willing to do that hard work for us. But, Soren Kierkegaard says, there's plenty that's actually really simple and really easy. <laughs> Love your enemy, is, a, is it just a, that's a great easy one to kind of, I think, use as an example here. It's like, you know, that's what it means. we There's no other way really to translate that. Jesus said to love your enemy, and so are we willing to do that? Are we willing to take seriously this idea of like taking these words and actually allowing them to affect change in our daily life, to systematically and progressively rearrange our affairs in order to become Christ-like, as Dallas Willard says. And I'm I'm often guilty of this, particularly like I'm as, as Bill said I'm studying it at the minute. It's a huge privilege. I love it. It's um, doing so much in my mind and my heart. Um, but I end up with a lot of like, like almost oversaturation of the, of the Bible. I'm actually neck deep in Ecclesiastes at the minute for an essay. Whew. Maybe, the, maybe we'll do a series on Ecclesiastes someday. That would be um, fun. Um, but this, this series going through the book of James is going to be challenging if you're willing to let it be. You can let the words wash over you, or you can choose to be doers of the word. And there's, as I said, there's 12 different areas of, of kind of wisdom and living that James is going to tackle. Um, to pull out uh, maybe an easy example, taming the tongue, right? And, and talking about how someone who can control their tongue is perfect, i.e. it's impossible to control your tongue. That's a challenge for, I imagine, almost every one of us in the room. Now, some people are really good and really... Um, honouring and guarded in the way that they would speak about others. But I suspect for a lot of us that's an issue where we, we need to do some maturing and some growing up. And so my encouragement as we kind of land here is to see this series as an opportunity to do this very thing, to be doers of the word. And obviously over the course of five weeks it's going to be hard to implement you know, everything that James would want for you. But try and find those one or two things. Maybe it'll be next week, maybe it'll be in two weeks' time. Maybe it's one of the things we've already done today. That, that speaks to you, that you feel like, you know what, I, I have some maturing, I have some growing to do in this area. And it's not a shameful thing, that's, that's fine, that's part of the journey. We have a good father, Jesus by our side, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're on this road, right? But how do we start to embrace this stuff and let it sort of sink into us in such a way that it affects change in our actual day-to-day, living to become doers of the word and not hearers only? And so that's that's all I want to say on James um, one. So realizing that we're in a battle, that you know we're we're going to be looking at this theme of maturity, learning to embrace trials and testing and temptation as a way of growing alongside you know God with us, and to become doers of the word. This invitation to really live this stuff, to practice what we preach. And so what I'd love to do now is just um, just pray. I'd love to pray. And um, I don't know if the band want to come back up or Bill, if you want to take over. And maybe um, if this feels like right for you at the minute, if, if, if this series, if this idea of maturing and growing, if you feel challenged by this, if you feel like actually, God, I really, this is, this is a great opportunity. I want, to, I want to systematically and progressively rearrange something in my life over this next month. I'd invite you to stand now and um, I'll just pray over us. As we do that, Lord, I thank you for these words that have come to us. We believe that they are from you and they are for us. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that you, you don't want to just leave us where you find us. You want to draw us into this journey with you. You want to see us become people full of wholeness and integrity. And I pray today, Lord, um, for each person hearing this that you would, um, you would make your presence known to them in this moment, that they would sense your still small voice, the voice of love, not of condemnation, but the voice calling us to something deeper and richer. And I pray, Lord, that over this next month of looking at this book, that you would, um, you would affect change in our hearts and our lives through your spirit. I pray that each person would find themselves challenged, by something, maybe more than one thing, that they would see that as an opportunity to to grow and mature. And we pray, Lord, that we would come out the other side of this series with a deeper love for you, a deeper love for each other, a deeper love for those around us. In your name, amen.